Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big, the handsome one that stands right in the middle. That's me. And you're listening to Music Mania Podcast. You are locked and loaded on the Music Mania Podcast. Thank you so much, man. I, I love talking about the things that I love, Clint. And for you to allow me to do it with you, uh, I am the Music Mania Podcaster. We roll tonight to the guitar bite. And for those about to rock, I salute you. You ready for some screaming heavy metal? Scream for me, Brazil! Scream for me, Brazil! We rock! You are now listening to the Music Mania Podcast, the number one hard rock podcast in the Midwest. Featuring hard-hitting interviews with rock's living legends. And now, here's your host, Clint Schweitzer. Um, this is awesome, man, and, and I really appreciate this. And it's it's just kind of perfect timing and everything with uh, the release of this book. And I, and I tell you, for those that aren't aware, um, the book is called Nothing But A Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. It's available now on Amazon. Go check it out. It's, uh, I think somebody I know that I was telling about, they ordered it like and got it in 24 hours. So like they're, they're already halfway through it. People are loving this. There's a lot of momentum here. Tom, just sort of tell us how this, this whole idea came about. You know, um, we, we talked about, uh, you know, you write, writing this with, uh, with Richard, kind of doing this together. But how did this whole thing come about? Did you guys kind of get together on this? Did someone bring this to you? How did it, how did this happen? Um, we kind of, we've known each other for a long, Richard and I have known each other for a long time, like back to, we worked at Guitar World together in the, uh, mid nineties. I'm a little bit older than him. So he came in like as the young intern when I was the managing editor and for like, we worked together at different magazines for quite a while. And somehow like the two of us, if we didn't have something specifically work related to discuss, we would end up talking about like this music you know like like we'd be like having dissecting tesla albums and like which is the better so it was always like our common ground and this thing that we talked about and for both of us we realized it was like the music that really as sort of him as a a younger guy but me as like in, in my early teens just like completely went into my brain and so we'd always toyed with the idea of doing this um and we might've even like spoken about it like specifically even like 10 years ago. And then sometime about like four years ago, we're like, we should really do this. And I don't know if it was like part of this zeitgeist of probably it's the same time people were deciding like, Oh, maybe we should reboot karate kid. And like all this (laughs) 80s stuff that's coming out now probably all got started a couple, like four, four or five years ago. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. We just sort of felt like it was time to do it. Um, and I think we wanted to get it to do it before anyone else did. And so we were like, all right, let's, let's do it. And we, so spent, we spent a year sort of putting together a proposal and then another three, two and a half years doing interviews. I mean, we did a, a, over 200 interviews for the book. So it was a massive, uh, massive undertaking. Well, and that's kind of what sets it apart because this is not a book where, you know, you are going back and, and, and giving, you know, doing kind of an auto autobiography on, on the era or anything like that. This is kind of an oral history presented by people that were there or the bands themselves. So that 
right there sets it apart. You had to go back and do hundreds of interviews. I mean, that, like you said, I was going to, that was kind of my question is how long that took to do, because there are, there are so many stories and, and, and interviews that you did to pull this off. And I think you even used some, um, some quotes from different podcasts over the years. And we've had all these guys, uh, you know, on our show as well. So just kind of talk about the interview side and how, uh, what the word would be tedious. Was it exciting and fun to, to kind of go back and, and catch up with a lot of these guys or had to be some really good moments and, and uh, some, some funny quips with, with a lot of these bands. I mean, for me, it was great because these were like, when I started in, in at guitar world in the mid nineties, even though I had grown, grown up on this music, the 90s was not a time when in a magazine you got to talk to these guys. Like that was the time where all of these bands were in the wilderness, like they had been replaced by grunge. So for me, the opportunity to talk to all the guys in Cinderella, to talk to, you know, everybody in White Lion and stuff like that. For me, I was like getting to live sort of my like 15 year old dream, you know. Um, so it was amazing. And it, it was also actually amazing how cool everybody was. Once word got out sort of that we knew what we were talking about and that we were real fans and that we weren't going to ask the bands like the same four questions everybody else does. Like, hey, you had really crazy hair back then. You know, or, what, or like, what, like, seriously, like, you know, like those, like whatever those five questions that they get are, they were really um, generous with their time. Um, you know, and then if we couldn't get somebody, um, if they weren't available or they didn't want to talk to us, then, you know, that's the beauty of, of the world. Now there is a lot of information out there. So, you know, um, we could go to podcasts. We could go also to previous interviews that we had done in the past. Um, for some people, you know, we like did research of interviews they had even done in the eighties, but mostly we got who we wanted, but to fill in the gaps, um, you know, a lot of people, there are a lot of great podcasts out there. So we would, you know, we would pull from there when we had to, you know, um, and get the information. So a lot of different sources like that. And, you know, there were people like we tried to get not, he doesn't really appear in the book, but like guys like John Bon Jovi, we knew we would never get <laughs> because he doesn't really identify with this era anymore. Sure. And we knew, like, I think we sent one email um to get axel rose but we knew that we wouldn't get him either but it pan you know just because he just doesn't do interviews and it's, but basically you know if we could get someone we would and like some people it took a while i think i have 18 months worth of emails trying to get this the sebastian bach interview oh man but we finally but we finally got him you know so anywhere we could we wanted to have the conversation ourselves so that especially because when you're doing an oral history, like you say, so if you have, say, every, we got everyone in Skid Row. So you've got the five guys in Skid Row and you really want to ask them, you know, you get two guys and they're talking about an event and you, you, it, the book is at its best when you have all the guys responding about this one event and you really feel like you're in a room with these dudes, like, like just, conversing about it and you're in the middle of a conversation between them so when we could get fresh material we did well you know one thing i find fascinating is that not only do you you know focus on uh the hollywood scene in the 80s which of course you know was uh, it was dynamic it was excessive it was explosive there was so many bands coming out of that but you also like you said uh talked to guys from skid row bands from the east coast twisted sister 
and uh, you know that has its own in Cinderella. You know that has kind of its own you know, sort of niche into that uh, environment because not every band came from, from Hollywood. And, and so how much of this did you kind of want to focus on the Hollywood scene? And then kind of what was the decision as far as, you know, talking to other bands that were kind of outside that realm? Um, we, look, the Hollywood scene was something that we really wanted to get right because that obviously, like at that time, that was, even though there were bands coming out of other places, that was the center of the universe. Yeah. Because like the strip and people talk about this in the book, it's like Los Angeles is enormous, but the thing that we think of as the strip, it's really a couple blocks. Yeah. You know, yeah. So you had this concentration of bands and musicians interacting, playing shows, trading band members, you know, Slash auditioning for Poison, um, Jakey e. Lee and Rat, you know, like these are all th these weird things that happen that not everybody knows about. But, you know, these people, the, the genesis of Guns N' Roses is like, it, which is incredibly, um, I guess, confusing is the only word, you know, because all these guys knew each other and Tracy Guns is in and then and then Axel is in and then Izzy's in and then Steven Adler's out and like it's very so we wanted to get all of that right because that scene was completely central and I don't think the whole I don't think the whole thing would have happened without it um, you know and the, obviously the bands coming out of there were some of the most important ones we also and we wanted to focus on the East Coast A because we're East Coast guys but B Jersey was this really important other place. And when I say Jersey, that includes um, actually, you know, Cinderella, even though they're technically from Philly, they would rehearse in Jersey, which is right across the river. That scene was also really important. It just wasn't as concentrated. It wasn't like this one place. So it's more difficult to cover, but we wanted to make sure that you had both coasts sort of ascending at the same time. And, you know, the problem with an oral history is you need all these people talking. So some people ended up getting sort of left out of the book and we apologize to some of them because they're on neither coast. Mm -hmm. Like I did, um, I interviewed both uh, Donnie and Chip from Enough's Enough and there's like one Donnie quote in there or two, but, you know, we couldn't, there was no way to like hook enough's enough into one of these narratives they're, they're a chicago band yeah yeah so it was it was we wanted to definitely tell both stories um i think the jersey thing is really important with bands like skid row and, and even like you know just east coast kicks and stuff like that but if you were a kid growing up at that time and watching mtv la was the it was like the never, never land, the Disneyland. And everyone even who was there really describes it like that. They're like, the strip was Mardi Gras. It was wild. And that was the, the fantasy was what was going on in LA. What does it say about that music and that scene in particular that here we are 30 and 40 years later and, you know, before COVID, you can still go see LA Guns in a club in America. You can still go see Firehouse and Great White and Warrant. And there's so many of these bands that still have touring entities based on the success they had back then. What does it say about that time and that music that resonates with people all these years later? Whereas there's, 
so many other time periods that are all but forgotten from disco and, and things like that. I think it, it, it really boils down to it be, being like the new classic rock now. Like it really has become for our generation, my generation, whatever people are around 50, um, it's the music of their youth, you know, like they're for, for the baby boomers, it was the Woodstock stuff. And the, and, and for us, this was the music that when we were growing up was on MTV 24 seven, that like was part of the fabric of our lives. And I think because it was like a celeb celebratory kind of music and, and was something that made us feel good when life gets complicated, um, you want to reach back to those songs. And I think the, so the audience is really there. Um, we always say we're lucky we did this book now because these bands are all in a great headspace because they are making a living. You know, they're not out touring 365 days a year in a bus, but they're doing fly dates every weekend. Of course, before, before COVID. Certainly. And hopefully again. <laughs> right. Um, you know, they're doing these fly dates. They've got these passionate audiences. A lot of them, as they say in the book, are taking home more money now, actually, than they were back in the day because they don't have like 12 semis and pyro and, and you know. Record um, labels and everything. Yeah. So it's a really good time for these bands. And a lot of them also say that, you know, when they when they go to the shows, the audience is the parents, which is us, like people like me who bring their kids who are equally into the music, you know, some of them, even their grandkids, I think it's transcendent. I think it, when you watch these videos on MTV and you see even like the numbers of views on some of them, it'll be like, you know, like 40 million views. I think all kinds of people from different demographics are discovering this stuff. Yeah. And when you watch it, those videos now, there's so much escapism and like you're, they almost people, the band seem like superheroes and there's like pyro and the, the ego ramps and people running up and down these things and like on, you know, flying through the air literally and drum sets flipping around. Like, it's like, what's not to like? I think it's just really captures the imagination. Um, again, if we had tried to do this book in 1996, you know, um, it would have been a whole different story because none of these bands were out working, but now it's okay to like this stuff again. And I think it has really been embraced by the generation that grew up on it as like their, their music and therefore their classic rock. Like I said, we'll talk about some of the bands um, maybe that didn't make it on such a large scale because like I, I always see the the 80s in that time period as kind of being like the Wild West and there was bands just getting signed to labels all over the place. And you know, the formula was, you, you know, you had a single, you had, uh, that was a rocker and then you had a ballad and that would kind of cut us, you know, go to the top. Talk about maybe some people from the book and uh, he's a good friend of ours. I'm not going to say Tough didn't make it, but Stevie Rochelle and like a band like Tough that didn't achieve, that it wasn't out selling out arenas. Talk about maybe some of the differences in, in some of the bands you talk to, like, you know, uh, you know, like a Motley Crue versus a Tough and how thin that line was between getting signed and going to, to the big time and just sort of toiling around in relative obscurity. I mean, it was a time where the um, a lot of people said to us, like managers and things like that, that like really all of the ducks for the for the super explosion to happen all the ducks had to be in a row. You had to have the great song. You had to have the great look. You had to get the right tour. You had to, so all of these things happen. Um, 
And, you know, some great bands, like, I mean, Faster Pussycat had one hit. They didn't become mega famous. Kicks, the same thing. They had one platinum record. Those are great bands that didn't get, like, the major sure. explosion. But bands like Tough and also, um, like, I'm good friends with uh, Steve Brown from Trickster. Oh, yeah. Some of those bands just got signed a little late. Yeah. You know? Wild and- Side is another one there. Too. Yeah, and South Gang with, with yeah. you know Butch, with Butch Walker, these guys got signed, you know, in like 1990, and there's you can't the, the music had had a really good run by then, you know, and it and so by then it sort of was a little bit of a form like you said a formula, you know, the band sort of kind of were looked like were imitating bands that had already been from this movement and stuff, so. I think a lot of it was timing with bands like the the later ones, they got to make one record and then they got cut off, you know, at the knees. Um, you know, some other bands that didn't like, I love this band killer dwarves from Canada who were out there. Like they're amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know? And like, they didn't get their break. I think um, it really, a lot of it boiled down to like scrappiness and business savvy. Even there's a story in our book, where when Poison puts out their first record, um, look what the cat dragged in. And they do the first video for Cry Tough and it doesn't take off. You know, and they're like, uh-oh, what's going to happen now? And they just knew because they were so smart. That, and the label was like, maybe we're okay, we'll move on to the next record. And these guys were like, we're not going to be defeated. And they were like, we got to make something happen. We have to get a, the rat tour that's coming up. And then they're going to let us make another video. And like, these, the guys in Poison, like, that's how they thought. They're like, we got to, we, we got to like flip the switch on this. And like, there's four guys in that band who could be band managers, you know, and they figure it out and they get the rat tour. And because they get the rat tour, they get to make Talk Dirty to Me, the video. And then, and there it is. And like, not every band got like that, that lucky break like that, but not also every band has like the gumption and just like the single mindedness and the business savvy to like, like pull something out of their bus like that when they're, when the, when the ship's going down, you know, if you didn't get the big arena tour and you didn't get your, if your video didn't move from headbangers ball to dial MTV, you know, it, it was, it was, it was a tough world out there, you know? Well, you got a, a forward in this book by none other than Slipknot's Corey Taylor, who I guess I didn't realize was uh, such a fan of this genre uh, so it was really cool. It kind of described how you got in touch with him and sort of his uh, fervor for for uh, this type of music. And I mean, I've seen him since since you know the book came out and stuff. I've seen videos of him up there jamming with like Mike Anthony from Van Halen and doing a bunch of cool stuff like that. But this is kind of surprised me that he was uh, such a fan. I mean, that's sort of, I, and I mean, that's I think why this thing is having such impact. I don't know if like we actually got really we were. For, very fortunate and we made it we didn't we we're surprised and elated but we made it onto the new york times bestseller list last week and that was and the reason that that is and the reason i'm bringing that up is because these fans are everywhere yeah you know what i mean they and like are. Corey was a kid growing up at this time and if you were growing up at this time this and you were into loud guitar music you were going to be into this stuff. And I know a lot of people subsequently maybe moved on to other interests or whatever, but I really believe like for Corey, for me, for Rich, 
maybe for you, like that music that is your music when you're like 12, 13, 14, 15, it's going into like a not fully developed brain yet. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you've got cortexes evolving and stuff and it just gets in there and it captures you in a way that the music later in your life isn't going to. So yeah, we were so psyched when we asked Corey, cause we'd heard that he was into this stuff. Like it wasn't like, um, and grateful too to him, but like, it wasn't like a, a slog getting him. It was just like, Hey, would you like to do this? He's like, totally, you know? And he just, that enthusiasm that you can feel in him is like what got us through making this book, you know, for four years of like, Oh my God, are we going to finish this thing? And you were like, yeah, we're totally going to finish this thing. Cause we love these bands and like, we'll get through Like we, we were running on that same energy. Well, for those that maybe haven't checked the book out yet, um, I know you come, you know, kind of from uh, the journalism side and also uh, as a producer as well, but is there, is there a band? Is there an interview? Is there a story that, you know, maybe kind of, I mean, you're very knowledgeable, you know, about the era, but is there a story or, or a specific interview that kind of blew you away that maybe you, that you, you could share with those that haven't read the book yet? That is something that really stands out that you're like, wow, I can't wait to get this in the book. People, this is going to blow people's minds. I mean, sort of from the, from the more less politically correct, but funny and kind of sort of the dirt side of things. When we started discovering the whole story about um, Dokken having video cameras and like their, their whole back of their bus was wired for video, their lounge. Um, and like, you hear one guy say this and you're like, I don't, we can't run this unless we can confirm this, you know? Suddenly like every dude in Dokken is like, oh yeah, we totally had that, you know? <laughs> and so they would film- That's a good you one. Could, you know, the back, the back lounge is where everything sort of um, naughty happens. And so they were like videoing, taping it. And, and then like I asked JJ French from Twisted Sister, like, did you know about this? Cause they were opening for you. He's like, oh yeah. Like, like it was like this whole, you know, other bands are like, hey, can we use your back lounge for the video? So like, there were lots of weird, funny things like that where, where like you're getting that interview and you're like, oh my God, I hope that we can actually corroborate this because this is, um, this is completely bananas, you know? Um, and what, that's sort of, I think, how picture, people picture the whole era to have been, but probably it was more isolated uh, incidents like that. For me, like the interview that blew my mind because I had been such a huge fan of his um, was Vito Brada, the guitar player from White Line. Oh. He does no interviews. Never. Uh, he's underrated yeah. too. Yeah. He's so great. Uh, I love his playing. He's done like two interviews in the last 20 years. Um, and I just one day, like I kind of knew Eddie Trunk uh, from somewhere, you know, from Syria. And I was, and I know he's friends with Vito. I'm like, could you possibly just send an email to Vito Brada and see if he would do an interview for a book? And like, I was not expecting an answer, but it must've arrived in the inbox, like at the right time of day on the right. And, and, and Vito's like, yeah. And I ended up interviewing him for like three hours. And again, like 15 year old, like that's where you want to reach back in time to like 15 year old Tom Bojor and be like, dude, look what you're doing right now. You, awesome. you win. And he was just so good. And so clear about like the whole arc and the career and also about like how things ended up in the nineties. Um, and it was just a, it was just a pleasure to talk to him. And I had, I hadn't expected to get that. So that was like, for me, my like 
my wow moment of like, I can't believe it's actually happening. Well, you know, uh, you talked about how the kind of nostalgia resurgence and, you know, people, you know, from around my age, which I'm 37 and up and. and to, oh, you're a, you're, you're a child. I, you're still I, a child. I, I am. <laughs> I was raised right, though, obviously, Tom. Um, yes. But th but that nostalgia hits so hard, whether it be, you know, uh, mini Nintendos, whether it be shows like Cobra Kai. Uh, people like my age now, ha, you know, are, are consumers and, ha, and have a little more money than we did when we were young. To, to Our parents were buying that stuff for us. So because of that, you've seen finally The Dirt gets made into a movie and comes out. Like, do, what, do you foresee or have you talked to anyone about this becoming any sort of uh, a, a video presentation of some kind? Because I, I, I just, you know, there's been a lot of documentaries over the years but I, to me, this could kind of be the ultimate all-encompassing deal. Have you, have you thought about that? Has anyone we, contacted you? I, we have been uh, optioned for a documentary. So I've been told from my friends who work in the movie and stuff business that like, you know, that doesn't mean it's definitely going to happen. Sure. But, but um, we have been, we have done a deal to option it for a, a documentary um, with, a, a director hopefully i can't say it because then i'll somebody will come over and uh beat me up they'll they'll come through that door right now but it should it, it it's looking good and it like with and with a good company and somebody who is a fan of this music so i think hopefully that should be happening i mean near future i don't know but like hopefully that will work would begin on that you know in the next year or so so i'm really pleased about that because um, we put so much into this book and I think we really maybe have with it. We, I, like you're saying, I think we've created a good framework. Yes. Um, for, for, for how a, a documentary on this, um, music could work in a couple of episodes. So in theory, that's getting done. Well, Tom, before we let you go, uh, and, and we want everybody to, to check out the book, go to Amazon and I, that's, uh, a great place to get it because it's uh, it ships really quick. That the, the um, company was um, St. Martin's uh, Press, I believe, is yes. the uh, publisher. Saint so Martin's you can Press, get yeah. you can get it through them as well. But uh, you can the get through them. Yes. you can get it at your local bookstore if you want to support your local uh, indie bookstore. But yeah, it, it is. I think it's really actually they're discounting it at Amazon right now too. But. They are, in fact, yeah, the hardcover I think is only seventeen ninety nine. So check it out. It's a nothing but a good time. The uncensored history of the eighties hard rock explosion, which coincidentally is why I'm doing this podcast because that scene was that impactful to me. So Tom, before we let you go, four quick questions. It's our final four drum roll, and you just give us whatever comes to mind, my friend. Okay. What was your first concert? Billy Idol Rebel Yell tour. That is awesome. That's a great answer. Um, I just saw him with Brian Adams a couple summers ago. And I, I, I mean, mid sixties and still just amazing. I, I love, love Billy Idol. Who opened that on that Rebel Yell tour? Do you remember? It was, do you remember Des Deckerson, who was oh my the God. guitar player in Prince who used to wear like the Japanese yes. uh, kamikaze bandana. Oh, that's awesome. Um, of all, I, I know you talked about Vito Brada, but is, uh, is there a, but aside from that, is there an interview that really stands out as far as like maybe I, I know that you kind of from a, from a fan standpoint that the Vito one was big for you. But is there is there one that of all you did two hundred interviews that is just like I can't believe I'm doing this. It's just like total uh, starstruck kind of moment for you. I 
think because I'm a huge, um, I'm actually a huge Poison fan. Um, like I just love those first two Poison records. Talking to Ricky Rocket, I was I was nervous because I had a bunch of questions to ask him, and we really needed to get them done. And I spent, you know, when I was a kid, the Talk Dirty to Me video is I think what really like that was like you know in star wars where they shoot the missiles into the death star <laughs> exhaust thing and it blows the whole thing up that video was the one for me That's um, awesome so that was where i was like that one i was really nervous about and i've done hundreds of interviews in my life and i was like don't f up the ricky rocket interview you need a lot of stuff from him okay so better shock rock band from the 80s wasp or lizzie borden oh I'm gonna go your with favorite wasp. i'm gonna go with wasp Raw meat wins. Love Wasp. <laughs> Man, I saw them in 2004 here, but before they were like banished from America. Right. And uh, it was one of the best shows I've ever seen. It's uh, still to this day. Um, so I guess since we've already done your first concert, what is the last concert you went to and how long ago was it? Can you even remember? Oh my God. It might have been. I don't think it, it might have been a cheap trick show. And this is like a I, year ago, probably. Or yeah, more yeah, than a year yeah, ago. yeah. I have not been. <laughs> I have not been. Um, I think I went to see some, like a couple local bands. I play I play in a comedy uh, black metal band called Witch Taint. So we played a show and then um, it might have been cheap trick. I can't. Remember, I've, I've seen Cheap Trick like 55 times. Yeah. They're like, they're <laughs> but it was something like that. But I can't, I can't remember what the last one. Oh, no. You know what I saw was um, there's this fantastic, like they, they actually play all over America, all female uh, Led Zeppelin cover band called Les Zeppelin. I've heard it. Oh, uh, good they're stuff. They're amazing. They're amazing. And that was like, that was like Janu late January, early February, and then things got weird. Yeah, so that was I, it. yeah. My, mine was Aerosmith in February on their Vegas residency, and then a couple of weeks later, I was on my way to see Kiss in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, and and while I was on my way there, is sort of where the world ended. Yeah, on that while I was on the way, it was like this concert's canceled. All the uh, college basketball tournaments are canceled. Everybody go home, and we'll see you never. And that's kind of. Was, yeah, I know it's like everything's canceled. But so yeah, yeah, I think it was I think it was Led Zeppelin and then probably some other like gigs at, at clubs and stuff. But yeah. Um well, it was weird. I mean, it's cool. All these bands now they've got dates on the books. Like Vixen has dates on the books. I know Cheap Tricker that I was mentioning. Like it seems like these guys are gonna give it a run I, this summer, at least I at know outdoor it. shows. And I'm pissed about Vixen because I'm gonna be in Vegas this weekend. They had a date on the books this weekend in Vegas that just disappeared. And as I should have known, you know, viewer beware these days, because, uh, right. you know, a concert on a website doesn't mean it's going to take place. So I'm going to Vegas this weekend without Vixen, but I'm sure we'll catch him down the road. Tom, best, you know, congratulations on what is a, a project that hits home with so many people from so many different backgrounds and that just absolutely adore this era and this music and bringing it to life in the way that you did. I think that's really special. And, you know, here's to better times in the future and here's to more success and hopefully more projects down the road stemming from what you've done here. It's really great stuff. And we can't thank you enough, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Take care.